You're listening to Adapted by The Narrative Labyrinth. Welcome to Adapted by The Narrative Labyrinth, a new limited series where we invite guests to come and talk about one individual franchise or story and how it's been translated across different mediums and medias. I'm your host, Rachel, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Andy from The Great Derelict about War of the Worlds, which I have to say, Andy, I'm quite surprised about because I really thought you were going to come talk to me about Dune. Well, I considered talking to you about Dune because I love Dune. I love Dune in most of its forms. Notice I said most of its forms, not all of its forms, uh, because once you get past God Emperor of Dune, woohoo, does that series take a left-hand turn that you didn't see coming? Starts off with intergalactic politics and warnings about charismatic leaders. Ends up with uh, sexual brainwashing. It's a weird journey. Uh, but no, I didn't want to talk about Dune because really there's only three adaptations of Dune from its source material. Source material being the book by Frank Herbert, and then you have the film by um, Alan Smithy, a.k.a. Um, uh, that Lynch fellow. Uh, you have the TV series on sci-fi, which I enjoy, but other people are going like, eh, not so fun. Uh, and then you have the fantastic Daniel Villeneuve film, but it's only half finished, so I don't feel I can really talk about that adaptation until at least part two has come out. But no! I chose War of the Worlds, and you know it, it's a book uh, by H.G. Uh, Wells, a very forward-thinking book, which was first published uh, back in the, uh, in the last years of the 19th century. Um, and we, we've seen many films. But do you know what my first uh, exposure to this was? Uh, your first interaction with War of the Worlds. Uh, did you see some random stage play, maybe? Or uh, the musical? You kind of got it on the second one there. <laughs> <laughs> Because my first exposure to War of the Worlds was the Jeff Wayne uh, musical version, the album. Jeff Wayne's uh, musical version of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, uh, which is fan-fucking-tastic. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, it's and, iconic, and, certainly. And, and the other things I said, and, and how dare you disparage the brilliance that is Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. But that was my first exposure to War of the Worlds. It remains uh, my favourite adaptations of the works and, and in my mind it's the most memorable and there's been many other adaptations before and since uh, there's very famously the uh, Orson Welles radio play from the 1930s uh, which reputedly resulted in Americans uh, fleeing from their homes fearing that aliens were actually landing uh, in, in the streets but but for me it will always be Jeff Wayne's and even Jeff Wayne's musical adaption has spurned adaptations there is an actual audio book drama uh, with uh, Michael Sheen playing the role of the journalist, uh, which is really, really cool. And there's an interactive experience in London where you get to put on like VR headset things and kind of interact with these uh, actors who are very, very committed to the part. What I think is really interesting about the uh, adaptation that you brought forward is you brought forward War of the Worlds, yep. um, sci-fi uh, royalty, I guess. It's, it's definitely on, 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 on high on the pantheon of, of the definitive works of science fiction. 
and one a relatively early work of science fiction as well as you said turn of the 19th century um science fiction although existed was really starting to find its feet as a as a medium uh and a lot of it was pretty batshit crazy as well which is oh, also God, great yeah. Incidentally, though, as, as a sidebar, uh, I, I did this research. The first documented sci-fi story which we could find uh, actually comes from ancient Greece. So that's how old sci-fi is. <laughs> I mean, science fiction is just the science of the day slightly changed. So science fiction has been around forever, in my opinion, as I guess you've just said with ancient Greece, um, because it's taking what is the believed understanding of the time and changing it and telling a story where it's slightly different. Don't know if I'd agree with that, but I feel that you want to keep this uh, under two hours long, so uh, <laughs> I will put a pin in that for a later date. <laughs> I'll agree with you on that one. Um, so yeah, but uh, as you say, though science fiction definitely existed before the turn of the uh, 19th century, um, it really started to become its prominence around that time. You think with Mary Shelley, H.G. Uh, Wells, there was a couple of kind of prominent authors that started to produce uh, Jules Verne exactly uh, work that was kind of uh, read or, or ingested um, and you had the birth of cinema which also was uh, uh, one of the biggest things to ever happen to science fiction well, I, I don't think you can argue that it wasn't one of the biggest things to happen to human culture is, is the birth of cinema you know so much of our entertainment now is kind of just fed from what we see in the movies you know it is one of the largest industries on the planet uh, and some people's entire lives revolve around that and also then arguing about it on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it makes sense though that you can see in the 19th century science fiction, especially what we consider as science fiction was coming to the fore because you're living uh, in this period of the Industrial Revolution is in full swing and the extent of the technological changes which are happening throughout that century must have been absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, if you consider in someone's lifetime you could have gone from living in a hut where to get to the nearest village was uh, several days travel. There's no electricity. You have to go and e get water from a pump to witnessing the first flight. And you could do that in a single person's lifespan. That's just kind of mind blowing. Absolutely. Science fiction uh, produced at, the real, at a real turning point in human culture and human uh, social evolution, certainly, and technological evolution, uh, even though we kind of still look like the same fleshy meat sacks that we did back then. Um, just with, I guess, less clothing, less restrictive clothing. No corsets. Um, well, like, I mean, I think it depends on the parties you're going to, quite frankly. Well, that is true. You've picked War of the Worlds. Excellent. Yep. What I'm finding interesting is you've not actually mentioned any of the um, numerous TV or film adaptations. Ah, well, you see, no, you see the, the thing with War of the Worlds is, I don't. You love think the they Tom have... Cruise one. I get it. The Tom Cruise 2006 movie is just the best one ever. 2005 movie and uh, actually it's very good it's a very good movie and it's a good adaptation of War of the Worlds but what it is is it is there's, there's really been two big uh, cinema adaptations of War of the Worlds there's the Tom Cruise ones you mentioned and then there was one that was done in 1950 something 53 I think it is uh, and arguably uh, there was another one done uh, around 1996 you may have heard of uh, called Independence Day it was a smaller independent film. You, you might have missed it. Uh, but the thing with all of these adaptations is is they, they, they adapt it to the time that the film was made. So the 1953 one is adapted to that world post-World War II where uh, the scale of nuclear weapons and nuclear war is very kind of ever-present. I mean, even actually the 1930s radio play, you know, that's adapted to, to that world. To, you know, it's transported from Victorian England to 
1930s America, and it's presented as if it was a series of actual news um, uh, segments interrupting, you know, an evening uh, variety hour. Uh, the 1953 one, you know, it's kind of dealing with post-war. The 96 one is, you know, the kind of the rise of uh, computer viruses and globalization. And then in the 2006-ish one, that's just, you know, it's, it's set in 2006. And it always uh, irked me somewhat that they haven't been able to do one set in Victorian England. And to kind of capture the... Um, between nature of, of uh, the world it begins. But I think part of the reason is an, an, an interesting bit of social commentary that's actually in the book. Uh, and I don't know if, I don't know how familiar you are with it or, or with, with that. Uh, uh, relatively familiar. I, I have a copy. I have uh, consumed it several times. Ah, well, then, then you will know, of course, H.G. Uh, Wells in, uh, in, in writing The War of the Worlds was actually writing something of a commentary on uh, colonialism, uh, especially by that there empire. Uh, that that where H.G. Wells was uh, a member of. You know, he, he was uh, effectively looking at what the British Empire was doing in, but it was going into these nations in, in Africa, uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, South America, you know, f throughout, uh, you know, what, what, what is typically described as the less developed world, where they would show up with these industrialized weapons and machines and machine guns and ships and, you know, mechanized infantry. And, and, and then you had people there who were still living, uh, much as they had done for much of the past thousand years, and just didn't really stand a chance against this advanced technology that was being brought there, and wanted uh, his readers, his listeners, to ask the question, well, what if that happened here in England, which at the time was the most technologically advanced society on the planet? And I think it's very difficult to kind of capture that mentality now when looking back at Victorian England, because you know, when we look back at it, we we we're not we're not insular. We're not living in that moment. We don't need someone to really point out that you know maybe colonialism wasn't the best thing in the world. Uh, I think most of us are probably aware of it. So I think it kind of loses some of that impact if you were to go back and set one in Victorian England, uh, which is a shame. But uh, that aside, the film adaptations uh, have been relatively good. They can't hold a candle to Jeff Wayne's version, of course, but uh, still. Ooh, I just thought of another one, actually, while we're speaking here. Another one of my favourite adaptations is from The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume 2 by Alan Moore, which is also a fantastic adaptation of The War for Wolves. <laughs> Excellent. I love the fact you just thought of another one. So I think what we're finding here is War of the Worlds has been adapted in two very different ways. It's been adapted kind of the core main story and is called War of the Worlds and is... Um, put on either film or other kind of more modern medium um, and ingested as a War of the Worlds piece or it's doing um, what is often seen done with like Shakespeare where they're taking the essence of the story and transplanting it into a new place with a new name a la Independence Day Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case and I also think because it's um, uh, outside of copyright uh, you know, the mouse didn't get his hands on this one uh, you know, once we got past, uh, I think it would have been the fifties, uh, and it became it became it came into the public domain. Uh, at that point, uh, yeah, all bets were off, and anyone who just wanted to make a science fiction film would just call it War for World because you could have instant name recognition then. So you have some adapta I say adaptations. Some people have taken the name War for Worlds and planted it on these things, and you go like, what is the connection to to the thing? And it just it isn't there. So you say there's not been a um, kind of Victorian style. The BBC in 2019 did a 
uh, TV miniseries of War of the Worlds. An attempt was, was made. An attempt uh, was made. Look, it was a three-parter, and the first two parts were really great, and then it did exactly the same thing as their Dracula adaptation, and the third one was batshit, and just jumped the shark, and, you know, tripod aliens at the same time. I, I, I suppose, and, and this is a selfish... I say selfish. It, it's a bit of a bugbear with me, in that they, I've yet to see my favourite scene from the book adapted well outside of the, the musical version, uh, which is the charge of uh, the Thunderchild, which I've always loved that sequence. It, it's, it's a fantastic bit in the album and the music, and you know it, it's very kind of a vivid image painted. But I've yet to see anything kind of really capture that spirit and that essence in a visual medium. Why do you medium. think that is? Well, I think in the film adaptations, it's just because they weren't set in Victorian England, and no one particularly was interested in showing, um, you know, you know that. And also, the part of that that part of a story is supposed to show the the military and technological might of the wherever the invasion is happening is futile up against uh, the might of the Martians. And in the uh, the fifty three film the might of the US military is the atomic bomb. So they use an atomic bomb. In the uh, Tom Cruise adaptation, it is the um, uh, it's, it's that big charge with, you know, all of the tanks and everything down a hill with uh, Tom Cruise's son who's running with a stick, I think, as I recall. Uh, yes, he goes over the hill <laughs> and disappears and he, he turns up right at the end and is just a little bit muddy despite the fact he absolutely 100% died yes. in that charge. And uh, in... Uh, uh, Independence Day, you know, they, they try the, uh, the nuclear bomb uh, at uh, in, in Houston, in Texas, and, you know, that doesn't work either. But but the point is, there was something romantic in this idea of this one lone grey battleship, you know, taking on the might of the Martians to allow a steamer full of refugees to escape, and, and, and that kind of heroic last stand. I haven't seen anything like that captured, which is a little disappointing, but I suppose because it's been living rent-free in my head for all these years, through the musical uh, adaptations of Jeff Wayne, uh, anything they did was just never going to live up to it. So, moving away from the, the multiple adaptions, I guess my question to you is, how did you get into War of the Worlds? How did you first stumble across this this property? Because I'm guessing based on your age, uh, you weren't around for the original um, magazine, how dare, how dare uh, you? How <laughs> magazine <dare> you? <laughs> serial, um, or the uh, or the American radio play, or even Jeff Wayne's original release. So, how did you come come to be? Uh, it was Jeff Wayne's version, actually. That was my first exposure. I mean, that came out in '78, which is, as you say, a little bit before my time. Uh, but my dad had uh, the album; still has it. And the thing about the album for Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds is the artwork in it is mwah, it, it is so captivating. On the cover, you have this giant uh, Martian tripod with these glowing green eyes, and it's firing its heat ray down onto the bowels of Thunder Child, which is kind of melting and expanding and exploding. And you've got, you know, in, in kind of a pseudo-Victorian script, uh, but the title, you know, The War of the Worlds, going across the top there if, if you open it up there's other little snippets of artwork you've got like uh, a, a painting of the uh, the martian shell on greenham common and people in their victorian outfits kind of you know head, heading towards this and you've got uh, another big picture which shows the um uh of a red weed kind of working its way up through england and i i, I would just sit and look at the pictures for ages i i i, I think 
it was probably a couple of years before I even put two and two together and realized that the musical version I'd sometimes heard my dad playing was connected to that, you know, because, hey, I was maybe four or five. Uh, but, but, but once I connected it, it was just my mind was blown and it was amazing. Something that I notice about War of the Worlds and its adaptations yes, um, is there's been quite a few attempts to turn it into video games. And I'd have thought, actually, this would be a really easy concept to make into a video game or a really successful video game. Um, but there was an attempt in the mid 80s um, where technology clearly just was not able to really do as it needed to do. Um, but in that version, they actually called it the Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. So <laughs> it was a video game based on a musical, but they couldn't reproduce the th- the music because it was all... It was all 8-bit. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, it was the ZX Spectrum. So, uh, yeah, bleep, bleep, bloop, hmm. probably, you know. I, I, I think... Uh, I, I, it's, it's something that you potentially can do, but I suppose it kind of comes down to what are the core elements of the story you want to convey. And one of the core aspects of the War of the Worlds is the protagonists, the, the, the people, are helpless in the face of the Martian onslaught. They don't win, you know? In the end, it was the smallest of God's creatures, the bacteria that brought down the, um, uh, brought down the Martians. So... I don't necessarily think... I mean, you could certainly do some sort of uh, survival horror game where you're trying to avoid Martians and survive and, and, and just get through. But there's not really a sense of you can win. You can't necessarily be proactive in dictating how the story ends. Unless, of course, uh, you're Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith and you take a captured alien fighter to fly up to implant the cold virus, or the computer virus in this instance, into the alien mothership. Uh, that aside... You know, you're much more of a Tom Cruise kind of just trying to get through your day, and no one wants to be Tom Cruise in in War of the Worlds. No one. Well, yeah, not just in War of the Worlds. Um, so I think as a video game, I think it's only so. There's been several attempts. Obviously, I mentioned the the '84 version. Um, they also did another version for the PlayStation in 1999, and again, it was Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. So, really, kind of banking on the the '70s musical rather than the original property. Well, I mean, it's it's. It's very iconic, uh, certainly in the UK. It, it's kind of like the one I think most people will think of if you say War of the Worlds. The image they will have is that that album cover. And well, is it an image or is it those uh, three notes? It, you know, is it actually a, a audio memory or audio thought rather than a visual one? Uh, it's, it's, it is a bit of both, but it, it's interesting that the Jeff Wayne's version has been, in of itself, has been adapted so many ways. You know, in addition to the computer games you mentioned and the audio book and the virtual experience, there was a stage play, which you know also went on, and that itself has been revised. The original one uh, had a kind of digital recreation of uh, Richard Burton. Uh, uh, doing the role of an narrator and they changed it to Liam Neeson who I think recorded it in his dressing room between Taken films uh, it, 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 was, it wasn't fantastic uh, there's been uh, you know a separate from the Jeff Wayne things though you know we've had other audio versions there's a big finish version uh, with Nicholas Briggs and Richard Armitage uh, doing the roles there is there's a heavy a, metal version there is a heavy metal version there's a version uh, done by um, uh, Star Trek alumni with Leonard Nimoy, Gates McFadden, Brent Spiner, and John DeLancey uh, all performing uh, various roles within it. You know, there's, there's, there's so many versions. Uh, it, it's ripe for adaptation because it's so timeless. It's it's so much part of the public zeitgeist. And most importantly at all, it is in um, the public domain. You don't have to pay any royalties to do it. <laughs> 
So you think there's two main reasons why the War of the Worlds itself and then the Jeff Wayne War of the Worlds is being adapted so many times. Uh, one is it's, as you say, it's a timeless story um, of, you know, people versus aliens or or what it's originally a commentary on. Um, but you also think the fact that it's public domain also makes it much easier to, uh, to, to, to do an adaption of. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think you can certainly look at, say, uh, in, in, in the second half of the 20th century, there's been some fantastic science fiction stories that have been put out there, but it's been a lot less adaptation. Now, is it because people are looking at those and saying, oh, they're not quite as relevant or as timeless? Or are they looking at the stuff that was made in the 19th century, the Mary Shelley's, the Jules Verne's, the H.G. Wells's, and thinking, yeah, I don't have to pay any royalties on that. That is very true. So... <clears throat> If uh, other video game versions include a, a, a strategy-based game, again, kind of late '90s, early PC version, but I, I can see that working. Like you know, you're you're the army again. You know, individual battles, again, a bit hopeless. But I guess, I guess what you're saying um, and what you've you've highlighted is the story itself is not actually particularly adaptable. Although the setting and the the set pieces along the way are great, the actual you don't actually do anything to save the day. You can't save the day. You can't Lara Croft this. No. You've got to wait for the bacteria to do its thing. Well, I mean, you can do it. They do it in uh, Independence Day. You know, they, they make the humans uh, proactive in their own salvation. But I think that takes away part of the... Um, part of the messaging of the story is, despite all your technological might, despite all of these wonders that you have, you can still be brought low by the smallest thing, the, 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 the thing you don't expect, the thing you're not anticipating, the thing you, uh, you know, the smallest, as, as it says in the book, the smallest of God creatures. And I think it, it would make a very compelling narrative, which I would certainly enjoy playing, and I'm sure a lot of people would, but it doesn't fit into your kind of uh, traditional, if, if, if I'm a great, great Stephanie Sterling, triple A um, computer game, where you have to be, you know, kind of a macho hero, you know, gunning, you know, taking charge, defeating the bad guys, big boss battle at the end where you take on a big alien hive mind and and save the world. If you have that in a computer game, it may be a more satisfying computer game experience, but it's not true to the narrative of the story. Do you think all these adaptations, of which point I think we're now into the dozens, um, but do you think they all have the same meaning? Do you think War of the Worlds has the same meaning across all its adaptions? No, well, I can't really speak for all of them because I haven't seen all of them. Um, the major ones, the ones you have ingested. The ones I have ingested, have they? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they do. I don't think most adaptations are trying to do what H.G. Wells was trying to do with his first adaptation. Because H.G. Wells was trying to convey a message and, and to say something about the society and the time in which he lived. Now... The adaptations which have come since the Jeff Wayne's version, you know, he is not really trying to say anything other than he loves H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and he wanted to create a musical tribute to it. That's kind of it was the an homage, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah, very much so. And then when you get uh, the um, to the films, you know, the George Powell version, in, in many ways, the George Powell version is a response to the Orson Welles uh, radio adaptation, even more so than the uh, the original book, because you know, the, uh, the Orson Welles uh, radio uh, drama came out in 39, you know, right at the the break outbreak of uh, the war in Europe. 
you know, it's, it's the year before. But detentions were still very high. Everyone was like, it, a lot like it is right now, where every other news channel is going, uh, oh, we're only like 30 seconds away from World War Three and stuff like this. You know, that was very much kind of a, the vibe at the time. And that radio adaptation, especially in the US, entered the public zeitgeist in that it was kind of presence in the pop culture. So when the film comes out in 53, it's still very present there. Uh, the, um, the Steven Spielberg version, one of Tom Cruise, it, it's it's a weird film. You know, I don't really know what Tom Cruise was trying to uh, what, what Spielberg was trying to say. I, I think it's a response to uh, things like the the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and uh, what was just kicking off at the time is is the war in Afghanistan and things uh, in, in Matil. I think it's talking about the American military superpower going into these places and it then they're not just kind of you know walking over to it and i think it was trying to show that you know america as a superpower has a inflated view of itself i i think that's what it was commenting on and you know so do you think that particularly the tom cruise version then in that case do you think that's actually more similar to the original version uh where it was a commentary on uh, lesser uh, technologically able societies and giant uh, monolithical colonialist entities. I haven't had a chance to watch the Tom Cruise version uh, before we recorded this, but, uh, but from what I recall, I think there is more co commentary in the Spielberg one than in the 53 one, but I think that might just be because I was alive when the Spielberg one was being made. I wasn't around in 63. I don't necessarily know what it was like living in that time and, and being on the ground the only reason i know about the commentary on the hg wells one is because i've read essays and adaptations of people who were talking about this is what was going on in the world at the time and this is what he is saying here and i haven't seen anything about that uh, about the, uh, the george power one i'm sure they're out there i just haven't seen them so i can't definitively comment and say absolutely that is what's going on there but i definitely think there's an aspect of it i think the spielberg one is a little bit saying, yes, we live in a technological, wondrous society and world where we have all of these uh, wonders and marvels, but here's something completely unexpected that's going to fuck your shit up, and just like that, your society's going to effectively collapse overnight. I think it's fair to say that we agree, or, or you're saying, and I'm, I'm definitely agreeing, that uh, it doesn't need modernising for new audiences because it's constantly being readapted anyway it's probably one of the most prolific stories that has been adapted what you're saying is you'd like to see a more traditional version uh based more on the book and the original themes and victorian era i i think what i'm what i probably want isn't possible what i want is i i, I want someone to take the jeff wayne's musical version of it to capture the essence and what I feel when I'm listening to that and to be able to transplant that into a film. And I say that knowing full well that's impossible. The closest they've come to doing that is in the audiobook adaptation of the musical version with Michael Sheen. Very good, people should check it out. That's the closest they've come to doing that uh, and to kind of capturing that, that sense and that feel. But I fully accept what I would like is impossible. Now, if we were talking about uh, a hypothetical new adaptation of the War of the Worlds, what would I want it to be? I would want it to go to a director who understands there's more to the story than just aliens from Mars have come to be uh, come to Earth to fuck shit up. 
I would want a director like Denis Villeneuve to take it, someone who has an affinity to the work and who can kind of capture the essence of that story and present that to me in a, a interesting way. It, it is absolutely possible for someone to do an adaptation, but I would like it to be a, a, a director with an affinity to the work who treats it with respect and reverence and who understands there's more to that story than just aliens from Mars are coming to Earth. So it seems like you actually want something more like Annihilation or uh, Arrival, where it's actually almost a smaller story that's being told rather than the full big picture, but we're focusing on individual plight rather than that of the... You know, the the the, the situation is actually the backdrop and we're looking at... Well, I mean, but but that is that is the part of the story. It, War of the Worlds, you are following a journalist who is witnessing this Martian invasion and it, it is reported from a very small scale. You know, it, it, you don't get a big sweeping narrative talking about, you know, it, in the book and, and in the radio film, you don't hear anything about what the rest of the world's response to this is. Not at all. You don't even hear about what the British government's response is to it really. You encounter an army division with the artillery you, you, you see the things with Thunderchild, but there's no sense that there's any sort of plan or organisation. There's, there's no high-level overview of it. It's all from a very low perspective, as if it was to happen to us. You know, if something was to happen to us, you and I are going to have no idea what's actually going on outside of what we might see on the news or, or hear. And I think that's what I want to do. I want to experience this story from that level without... And, and that's one of the things I think the... Um, the Spielberg version does quite well, you know. Tom Cruise has got no fucking clue what's going on, does he? In life or just in this one movie? I stand by the statement I made. Do you think that kind of uh, story is possible on a modern narrative, given our interconnectivity, smartphones, the internet of everything, 24-7 news? Not at all. I, I, I think you can absolutely do that. And, and in fact, you could even feed that into a modern telling of this story, is that maybe one of the first things that uh, them their aliens do is to collapse the uh, communications networks. Because think about it, if all of a sudden we lost all of our uh, EM communications, so the internet, the TV, the radio, everything that we currently use to communicate, how would you have a clue what's going on anywhere past the end of your street? So do you think to tell an effective adaptation, a modern effective adaptation, you'd have to neutralise modern technology? You'd have to return people back to that almost Victorian state of existence? Uh, I think that might be part of it, but it depends on the story they're trying to tell. I, I think if you do do that, though, I think it makes for a much more compelling story. A lot of times people want to pay homage to the Orson Welles adaptation. So, you know, they like to have the, the radio wireless reports. You want to have that kind of Hindenburg moment, isn't it? Oh, it's burst into flames. It's burst into flames over humanity. You know, you want to have those little moments in, in the film. But I think if you take that away and it's a sense of, people are just trying to figure out as they go i think that's an interesting story but i think if you do that i i don't know how modern society would react to that you know in victorian society they were used to waiting until the next day's paper came along there's even a bit in in the thing where he goes the martians land on greenham common the next day he goes to get the paper to see what's happening i mean he's writing a report to send back to his publishers for the next paper that's how anyone seems to know anything that's going on but today we just don't do that at all and i don't know i don't know how that would look but i think that would be a potentially compelling story to see 
Do you think you've got elements of Cloverfield then in that case? Or do you think Cloverfield has elements of War of the Worlds in it, in that kind of storytelling? Oh, I think Cloverfield's definitely got kind of uh, notes of uh, War of the Worlds in there, especially the first one. That that sense of, you know, the, the unknown, you know, arriving and, you know, your might being uh, impotent uh, against it is, is a key part of that. And the chaos that ensues from that, I think Cloverfield... Mm-hmm. So I personally think Cloverfield is... A, is uh, I wouldn't say a straight adaptation of War of the Worlds, but it definitely has a lot of um, of the same beats and the same elements of of War of the Worlds, told in a in a in a very different way, um, or not that different really. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I've certainly never sat there and thought mm, Cloverfield is definitely a War of the Worlds adaptation, but there's there's a lot of War. I, I think a lot of the same ingredients are in there, but I, I, I think when you talk about the War of the Worlds, the the idea of the invading force, the the from another world is is part of it and uh, I don't think in the first film you really get that sense of an invasion it's more of a monster but I suppose you're kind of blowing the lines between a kaiju film and an alien invasion film what does War of the Worlds mean to you? how has it affected your existence? I'm guessing quite a lot I mean I I, I think there's about 40 minutes of uh, podcast back that way which kind of kind of goes over most of that <laughs> I, I don't know how i could sum it up i mean it, it's it's a, a piece of uh science fiction that i i really really enjoy it's, it's one of the seminal works and and it's i i think as i've grown and and, and matured and seasoned uh, i think it's a polite way of saying gotten fucking old uh, I, i've come to appreciate a lot more of the nuances that are in there i mean you know hd worlds is a product of his time and I think as with everyone, you kind of have to judge them of their time. There are views that H.G. Wells had, which you know do not broke with the modern day. But in some ways, he was very forward thinking. And I think it's very interesting that he was looking at the, the state of the British Empire and what it was doing in the world and was asking people within that empire to imagine if the shoe was on the other foot. Uh, and then you've got the Jeff Wayne's musical version, which is just... It's it's literally a chicken soup for my soul. It's it's something that you know. If ever I'm feeling down, if ever I'm just you know want to take a break, I just put that in, and you hear those opening notes. You hear the the Richard Burton notion. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century. You you hear that, and it just kind of takes me back to my childhood and to kind of a comfy place. And I'm just along for the ride, and I just like to sit there and just experience that journey. So you think it probably had an effect on your uh, forming of of interest in science fiction and storytelling, even if it was not the first? Well, it, it definitely fed into it, but I, I, I think it might well have had more of an uh, impact on my love of prog rock. <laughs> well, that's a whole separate podcast. It is. Um, and, and beyond right, the purview but... of this one. <laughs> <laughs> so my final question to you is, if someone had never experienced any part of War of the Worlds before... Um, mm-hmm. how would you suggest they engage with it? Where would you suggest they start? Well, I would kind of suggest they go and listen to the album. <laughs> well, it's an easy one, but but for, for me, and I, I actually had this happen quite recently. I, I, got, I got some good friends uh, over in the US um, and uh, I did my interlude episode of The Great Derelict where I asked people to just kind of submit a, a piece of music or uh, a, a track from science fiction that means something to them and just record a little introduction for it and amber chose uh 
a track from War of the Worlds. And so uh, that was on. And, and my friends in the US said they'd never heard of it before, but they were going to go and seek it out. And then the next thing I heard from them, they were absolutely loving it. They were like, how come I've never heard of this before? And what I think is fascinating is there hasn't really been any others. No, no one has kind of adapted 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea into a musical version. You know, no one has kind of done the time machine. This is just this weird aberration that exists on its own. I mean, I say that there is a Jeff Wayne's version of Spartacus, which is not bad, but it doesn't have the same impact as this. But there's something about this that's so compelling. It, it's something I'd like tell you what, I'd, I'd like to see more adaptations of works in this style than necessary adaptations of the War of the Worlds. I would love to see someone take classic literature and give me a musical version like this. There you go. There, there, there's a there's a, a flip for you at the very end. <laughs> so so your surmise is actually that you don't want to see more War of the Worlds ad- adaptations or versions or homages. What you want to see is the Invisible Man and the Time Machine and Dracula and Frankenstein as prog rock musicals. I want to see both, but I, I would put it to you uh, in, in my closing thoughts, perhaps on your uh, uh, podcast about adaptations, in that I don't think everything needs to be adapted. Adapted? Adapted. There you go. Learn to speak English. I, I don't think that there's a definite push, and I think I think maybe it's a bit less in the last couple of years, but maybe it's just been COVID's kind of slowed it down. But there's a definite feel that you have to adapt everything everything has to be a live action big budget movie for it to be successful otherwise it isn't and then when you do adapt a thing and it fails well that's a failure of the property not a failure of the film i think there's an argument which could be made is that you know novels are a legitimate medium comics are a legitimate medium uh musics musicals are a legitimate medium i don't think there's necessarily a need to adapt things to another thing if you have a reason why you're doing the adaptation other than I want to make all the money because this thing has name brand recognition I'm all for it but unfortunately I think a lot of the time uh, in, in the modern world uh, adaptations solely come around because there's name brand recognition and I want to make all of the money and I think that's when art suffers and those sort of adaptations harm the brand as a whole and I think War of the Worlds is lucky in that it's old enough that that mindset wasn't necessarily prevalent when most of the good adaptations were made. I think if War of the Worlds was to have come out and been as popular as it was in, say, the 70s or the 80s, I think we would now have... uh, Someone would have attempted to make a film version of it. It might have bombed because people say, oh, it's just Independence Day, but less good. Uh, And then that would be it. There wouldn't be any push to do anything with it, uh, which I think is a shame. I actually could not have said that better myself. And my very, very final question before I let you sign off is, do you think we can have a good War of the Worlds adaptation post-Covid? Can War of the Worlds help redeem viruses? I don't think even in War of the Worlds, the viruses are necessarily for good guys. It's just the marshes were collateral damage with that. And, and we were just laughing at, haha, our superior immune systems. Um, what do you? I absolutely think you can do a good adaptation of it in the modern age but as i've said it comes down to what are you trying to say what are you trying to do with this uh i mean what might be interesting with an adaptation of war of worlds is set outside of a western european uh sphere of influence you know 
maybe someone do me a uh, Ming Dynasty Chinese War of the Worlds. Show me, show me that potentially is interesting. Show, show me how other cultures would react to this, which is you know kind of the core story of the original one was you know this superior um, technological power you know loses out they could do it specifically with the question of viruses um in the league of extraordinary gentlemen version of the war of the world uh, there's a little twist at the end of that where it's not the common cold which kills the martians uh, they virus bomb them with a mutated form of anthrax and then the whole common cold thing is just a cover story they come to use with it so there's definitely ways you can do it if, if you're so inclined but as i said earlier it kind of comes down to the director and why are you making it are you making it because you have something to say or are you making it because people know what war of the worlds is and it will make us some money uh, and if it's the latter it's probably going to be shit on that would you like to sign off um so where else can we find you on the internet to listen to you talk about other things that aren't just war of the worlds but also war of the worlds Oh, yes, you, you can find me over on The Great Derelict, which is at greatderelict.libsyn.com, also at rogue2media.com, where I talk about everything and anything to do with science fiction. Um, Rachel's been there uh, at least a couple of times, um, scurrying around the deck somewhere. Uh, I also do other podcasts on rogue2media.com, and you can find me on most social media at Andy3E, uh, depending on which ones of them have imploded this week or not. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Excellent. Uh, you've been listening to Adapted by the Narrative Labyrinth, and I've been your host, Rachel. And you can find all episodes of Adapted and the Narrative Labyrinth on all major podcasting and social media platforms. All you do is search Narrative Labyrinth. Music in this episode has been composed by CJ, and you can find them on SoundCloud. Their link is in the description. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for coming on, Andy, and goodbye. Goodbye.